Let's now turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Prophecy of Isaiah, the second chapter. We'll read the first 11 verses. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Let's also turn our book of forms and prayers to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 38. What is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? First, that the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained, and that, especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is always fitting uh, to begin the first day of the year at worship in God's house, as is our custom from year to year. And the fact that New Year's Day falls on the Lord's Day this year makes it uh, special, extra special. We not only begin every week uh, in the Lord's house, we not only begin every week with the rest that we have in our resurrected Savior. But this year we begin the year enjoying that rest. And it is fitting also that we remember the grace that liberates us from bondage to sin. And that really is uh, what the New Testament day of rest is about. We read the law from Deuteronomy. And in this second giving of the law, an additional reason is given for the observance of the Sabbath rest, a reason that's not simply based upon creation, that God created the world in six days and rested the seventh, 
but a reason that is further grounded in redemption. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with an outstretched hand. Our Sabbath observance, our New Testament observance of the Lord's Day is grounded on the finished work of our Savior. It's grounded in redemption. The finished work was sealed on that first day of the week in which he arose from the dead and added to the creational argument for observing one day out of seven to rest and worship is the wonder of this redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord's Day 88 highlights that grace as it sees uh, the day of rest in connection with the eternal Sabbath to which God's grace indeed will bring all his children in time. Now this, uh, this Lord's Day doesn't really make the case for the abiding, uh, moral obligation of the fourth, fourth commandment. In other words, it doesn't go into in any kind of extensive argument that yes, the fourth commandment is still binding upon the lives of God's people, but rather it assumes it because after all, indeed, it is uh, the fourth commandment, it is, it is one of ten commandments, and it belongs with the moral law, no less than such commandments as uh, you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, and it is obviously arbitrary to extract one of those commandments from the ten and say, this commandment no longer applies to Christians. No, it belongs to that rule of gratitude by which Christians show their thankfulness to God for his redemption in Christ. The Lord's Day doesn't really argue that, but it does assume that. And it does zero in on what is central to the observance of the Lord's Day. And that is public worship. That I, we confess, especially on the festive day of rest. I think it's significant even that there is the reference to especially. It doesn't rule out other occasions in which the church gathers for worship. But especially on this day, in other words, worshiping the Lord on Sunday is more important than going to church on Christmas Day. It's more important than going to church on Good Friday or other uh, special days that the church may choose to observe in worship especially on the Lord's Day, this festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people. It zeroes in on going to church as really a central, an essential, you might say, in all ordinary circumstances, part of observing uh, the fourth commandment. And a commitment, actually, a commitment to worshiping the Lord uh, on Sunday goes a long way toward answering a lot of questions about, about work and the legitimacy of certain kinds of jobs goes a long way also in answering other questions about other activities, whether recreational otherwise that, uh, people might do on the Lord's day. A man went to a restaurant after church, as is the custom, sadly, in many places. After Sunday worship, you go out to eat. And being a good Christian, he was witnessing to the server, inviting her to church. And her response was, I can't come to church because I have to serve all you Christians who come here right after church every Sunday. Not such a great witness, actually, after all. 
Grace brings people to love the Lord's Day. And grace brings people to love the purpose for which God gave it, right? Jesus uh, says that the Sabbath was made for man. It's grounded in creation, yes, and it was made for man. God sanctified uh, the seventh day, and he blessed it, and that blessing hasn't been withdrawn. The Sabbath was made not for Israel, not for the Jews. The Sabbath was made for man, and the purpose for which God, in his grace and wisdom, established one day of seven for rest and worship continues as a precious gift that grace teaches us to cherish and value, to observe diligently in faith. God's redeeming grace calls us to rest and worship effectually. A call that reaches the hearts of God's people and they enter that spiritual rest that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they delight to uh, exalt and to celebrate that rest in a special way on the festive day of rest. God's redeeming grace calls us to rest and worship. And we're going to look at what's involved in that from God's word, also as summarized here in Lord's Day 38. For one thing, we gladly go to worship together with God's house. I, I change the word to God's house because often we think of God's house and we use this language to describe the place of worship as if this building is God's house. Well, that would fit a kind of Old Covenant, Old Testament view of the place of worship because it was an actual structure. But actually, we go with God's house. We gather as God's house. And we gladly go to worship together with God's house. Come, let us go. That's the language that we heard in, in verse 3 of uh, Isaiah 2. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And here it appears to be a kind of a figurative description of the kingdom of God, which will be exalted and which will expand throughout the world as the highest mountain. But then it's clarified to the house of the God of Jacob. Now again, in context, that sounds like a reference to the Old Testament temple. Well, what else could Israel understand and think at that time and place in redemptive history? But we know that it means far more than that, something far more glorious than that. But the point we zero in on is this mutual commitment and joyful encouragement together to come. Come, let us go. And I think perhaps like never before, we need to emphasize something that really is rather obvious and in former generations was rather clearly understood that there is significance to this little word, go. Come, let us go. It needs some attention. It is essential to the meaning of attending what? The assembly. That's what worship is. It's a solemn assembly of God's people. It means going where the church is assembled. Again, in the Old Covenant language, we hear the same in uh, Psalm 1 to uh, 22. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. This is one of those songs of ascents. 
They belong to that collection of psalms that was associated with these ascents to the house of the Lord, going to Jerusalem for the special days of worship, the festive days of celebrating God's redemption. Sometimes that involves quite a long trek. And some of these psalms give assurance of God's protection and care for his people on the way because they're going to gather together at the temple of the Lord. In Acts chapter 20, we read of the church as those who come together on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the church and says, when you come together in one place, it's an actual assembly gathering together at a common location. Let us go. It's obvious, isn't it, that this is the opposite of saying, let us stay at home. Or I will stay at home. Our spouse, our family, is not the house of God. And commitment to worship, indeed, is personal. But that doesn't mean that it's private. It's not only a family matter. It's not a matter of simply uh, individual activity or couples together. Many people, Isaiah 2 says, many people shall come and say, come and let us go. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is a corporate summons to engage in this activity together. Now, sometimes we can't go. And that's... uh a simple reality for a variety of reasons. And that's a hardship. And that's why we regularly remember our shut-ins. We remember those who are sick. We remember those who are so frail. And their circumstance, uh, circumstances are such that they can't go to church. And we remember them with sympathy. Because it is a hardship. And we pray for them. And we trust that God indeed is able to bless them in that difficult situation. And sometimes we have to miss uh, some services because of uh, necessary works, works of mercy, some works of service that indeed are legitimate reasons to be absent from the house of God. And we likewise recognize that difficulty and the fact that it, that involves missing a privilege, missing a kind of blessing that God's people regret to, to, to miss. That's a, that's a hardship. These are, these are circumstances indeed that God's people, uh, sometimes often face actually. But going to church is a mutual, happy, uh, commitment. Psalm 42 describes the, the happiness of, uh, appearing before God. I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. And now he's in a situation where he remembers this with sadness. He laments his uh, current circumstances in sickness or soul trouble. The psalmist is left alone with a rather sad song here in Psalm 42. You see, we care if we can't come. And we care if others can't come. And we really care if others can come, but they won't come. And they don't come when they could come. 
Because we love the honor of God and we love the worship of God and we want others to love it as well and to come. We're not content to enjoy this privilege selfishly. It's not in a spirit of judgment. It's in a spirit of concern for the glory of God and for the well-being of His church. It's a concern for... It's the same kind of concern that we have for evangelism and missions so that more people would gather to worship and glorify God, that they'd be brought into the church in the fellowship of the saints to extol the Redeemer. We gladly go to worship together with God's house. It's not something that we enjoy selfishly. In Hebrews chapter 10, we we also hear the language of let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is faithful is, who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And the next verse tells us how to do that. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We gladly go to worship together with God's house. Secondly, we delight in the blessings of God's house. Now, delight, that's a, that's a word, that's a, a fact that really lies at the heart of the Christian life and Christian service. We sang of that. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's delighting in the law of God. It's it's delighting in his truth that is characteristic of God's people. The Sabbath is only honored when people treasure it, when they view it as a festive day, a day of celebration, not a day of gloom, not a day of restrictions, not a day in which you have to do certain things and you can't do other things that you'd much rather do, but it's a day in which you delight in God and the Sabbath. In fact, Isaiah 58 describes observance of the Sabbath very much in terms of of delight. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high places of the earth. It's like... If you delight in the Sabbath, and that delight reflects a commitment of heart, a kind of cold-blooded determination that is sometimes necessary to say, well, this is what I would rather do. These are my pleasures, but no, I will do what the Lord wants me to do. And the result of that is that then you'll delight in the Lord. Delight in His day, and you'll learn to delight in Him evermore. Delight is at the heart of it. True worship finds spiritual joy and pleasure and satisfaction in God's house. We will be satisfied, the psalmist says, with the goodness of your house. It's to behold God's power and glory in the sanctuary that draws Christians into his presence. So what does it mean to delight in the blessings of God's house? Well, there are a number of things that are that are listed in the catechism. And the first is uh, to learn God's word. 
In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that the opening statement of uh, the catechism summary of what it means to observe uh, the festive day of rest is concerned with maintaining the gospel ministry and an educated ministry so that men are trained in the schools that would equip and prepare them to expound the scriptures. Because in order to worship God, we come to learn his will. We need to be taught things that we do not yet know, or we need to be instructed in things that we're not yet so clear on, and to have our knowledge sharpened and increased. You hear that in the the resolve expressed there in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Let us come to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. That's the first things mentioned. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, bringing them into the fellowship and the communion of saints, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And see, God's people, unless they're spiritually sick, they have an appetite for that. Imagine having a a passion for a certain uh, vocational um, area of study vocational pursuits and you're going to sign up you're going to go to this this uh school a college or some specialized school and you're going to become proficient in this field and you might make a lots of money you might land a good career and it's something that you're passionate about and so you sign up and then you only attend half of the classes brothers and sisters there are two worship services every sunday And that means that there are two opportunities that we have to come into God's presence and to enjoy the the riches and the blessings of his house. And principle among those blessings is that we learn his ways, that we're instructed in the richness of Scripture. And if we're not interested in that, one of two things are, are, are wrong. For one thing, we don't have a passion for the teaching of God's Word. Or we think we really don't need the official proclamation and teaching of God's word in order to really grow in our knowledge and faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I think just mentioning those problems kind of involves its own answer to those problems. So necessary, so much to learn, so rich to healthy spiritual appetites that we should delight in God's word together. Secondly, there is the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These also, with the preaching of the word, are, are means of grace. Now that sounds like technical language, but it's important language. Because it describes ways in which God works. It's not just a description of things that we do that we may find beneficial, and we could add a whole bunch of other things to that, couldn't we? Reading good books. Meeting for, uh, Fellowship. And in a sense, and truly, yes, these things serve for mutual growth and encouragement. But in the history of uh, Reformed theology and understanding, that term means of grace is kind of restricted to those things that are especially appointed by God, whereby he works in a unique and special way. And that pertains to the preaching of the word, the primary means of grace, it's called but also the sacraments, things that God has appointed to strengthen our faith, 
means by which he works. And we don't measure the effectiveness or the truth of that by our own feelings at any given service. We attend worship by faith because we believe that, in a sense, we enter the workshop of God and we access those special gifts whereby he does his gracious, mighty work. To pray publicly. In Isaiah chapter 56, we have this uh, prophecy concerning the advance of the kingdom of God throughout the world. And it says, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Interesting that those things are joined together there. And they're joined together in view of what's going to take place in the future with a gathering of people from all nations. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yes, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. It's a prophecy of the New Testament expansion of the kingdom of God, where people from all nations will be gathered. Where? To the temple in Jerusalem? No, to the fulfillment of that temple. They'll be gathered together with the people of God, with Christ in their midst. They'll be joyful in this universal house of prayer. This gathering that is characterized by a people who call upon the name of the Lord together. And along with the sacrifice of praise, that's the New Testament sacrifice, not bringing bulls and goats to be slaughtered, but to come to render to God thanksgiving from the heart, expressed with the lips. And along with that, there is the the sacrifice of giving But our catechism also speaks of a blessed sacrifice with which God is well pleased. That's the language of uh, Hebrews chapter 13, descriptive of what it means to do good and to share. Because with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And we delight in the privilege to offer up our gifts for the advance of the church and kingdom of God with confidence that he, he receives them. Now, such blessings, brothers and sisters, are not experienced virtually. The activities described here are not done alone. Now, that's obvious, right, when you consider uh, some of them, like like the sacraments. The sacraments are are observed, administered in the, in the congregation and the gathering of God's people. But actually, it's true of all. Why don't we just set up a big screen when the minister is absent on vacation or for whatever reason? Technologically, it would be a snap to do it. Put up a big screen and get the best preachers in the United Reformed Churches to, uh, well, we could live stream their service. Bigger than life, perhaps. We could probably get the best Reformed preachers in the North American continent and live stream their sermons. Why don't we do that? Because we believe that God wants his people taught by the living preaching of his word, right? That's what we just considered when it comes down to worship. 
We'd rather have the, the minister with the weakest gifts in the Federation uh, deliver a live sermon than live stream C.H. Uh, Spurgeon or George Whitfield or whoever we could imagine. Because we observe these things in faith, relying upon God's means that he has appointed. If we don't agree with that, we've kind of basically eliminated any kind of consistent biblical argument against bringing in the big screens. A screen is not equivalent to the living preaching of the word. In fact, any notion of virtual worship is really quite misleading. You know what virtual means? It means almost the same, or it means in effect the same, but just under a different form. But worshiping by use of a screen or a recording is not almost the same. And it's not the same in effect with just a different kind of form. Now, that is not to discourage those who may be listening to this sermon by way of live stream, as if there's no significance to that, as if they cannot be blessed and helped by that, or that it cannot, in a certain sense, also increase their sense of belonging to this congregation and being a part of, of the church at worship. So it's not meant to discourage those who cannot come and who rely on such things for their their edification and blessing. But at the same time, it's just as important, isn't it, to give biblical incentive to God's people to seek to overcome little difficulties that ought not to keep them away if they were really determined to come. And ought it not to be said in order to remove excuses from those who easily could come, but they just don't want to come. It's not that important to come. And in those instances, we say that none of these things that are descriptive of worship according to the assembly of God's people can be done virtually. To prefer to stay home when we could come is wrong, and it's harmful. In connection with that, finally, we show, as God calls us to uh, freedom and worship, that we are living members of God's house. Isaiah 2 is really describing the saving effects of the gospel. When it says, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that's the language of people who have discovered a new found purpose and joy to life. And how did that come about? Well, it's the result of what's described in the end of verse 3. It says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, the Lord Jesus tells us when he spoke to his disciples after his uh, resurrection, and he commissioned them to, to go and preach the gospel and declare that remission of sins and eternal life is given. They are to proclaim that word of the Lord is to be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It's from Jerusalem that the gospel message will be proclaimed to the nations. And as a result of it, many from the nations will make this very confession. Let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, it's another way of saying that when people are converted, uh, they are they are added to the church. 
they don't simply become followers of men. Uh, they don't become groupies of their favorite online preacher. Now, I've got favorite preachers, a lot of them actually, and I read a lot of their sermons, and I love to listen to them, and uh, hopefully you do too. But that's no substitute for gathering to worship the Lord as his house. When people love God and the gospel, they love the worship of God. They love the preaching of the gospel. They love the sacraments. They love God's people. That's why diligent worship is an indicator of one's spiritual condition. To begin with, we might say it's a gauge of conversion. When people come to church, not because they have to, but because they want to, well, that's a sign of spiritual life, isn't it? It's also a measure of spiritual life. And that means that for the, some people, and perhaps for some of you, the question for you is, are you really a Christian? Do you have a passion for the worship and service of God? Or secondly, perhaps, are, have you grown lukewarm? Are you cold towards the things of God? Have you left your first love? We're going to consider tonight that the conduct of the gospel are the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ have an attraction and an appeal to you. In Hebrews chapter 4, we have a number of all, a number of other kinds of exhortations that begin with the word, let us. Let us. And they include verse 1, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So a commitment to worship involves the question, have we entered into this spiritual rest in Christ Jesus? Have we begun to observe the eternal Sabbath by ceasing from sin? Or we go on in this chapter and we read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, referring there to Israel who didn't obey and didn't believe God's word and didn't enter into the rest of Canaan. And then more positively on an encouraging note, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to it. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, that's a reference to that that, uh, Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, overshadowed by the cherubim. But of course, that's fulfilled now in in Christ, and we have access to heaven. And that access is not limited to corporate worship, but it does have a special uh, enjoyment and privilege when we do so together. Let us go to the house of the Lord. That's language of godly resolve, right? The beginning of a new year, people make New Year's resolutions. Well, here's a resolution that we ought to have no question as to whether or not it's a good one. Let us, let us be resolved to to worship the Lord with commitment and zeal and faith and joy this coming year. You know that the Sabbath was given an added meaning to Israel as a sign of their separation to God, as something that distinguished them from the nations, as a people who have been consecrated to the Lord. And they gave this very concrete, visible, 
testimony to that by abstaining from work, unnecessary work, because they weren't slaves anymore. And we testify our consecration to God and our trust in Him and that we are not slaves to materialism. Again, that doesn't mean that there are no works of necessity on the, on the Sabbath. But we recognize that observing the, 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 the Lord's Day indeed is an activity of faith that this world can't relate to. There's no obvious consequences of failing to come to church. I mean, there are obvious consequences when people commit murder or adultery or, or, or theft. Often legal consequences, if not moral and real life consequences. There's no obvious consequences to neglect, neglect of worship. And our motivation is not uh, materialistic and worldly in that sense. But it's based upon the grace of God by which he sets us apart to his service and worship. Let's show that fruit of the gospel as described here in our text. Amen.